0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. <music> This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, new archaeological evidence indicates that 1,000 years ago, native Floridians were trading with the
1: Mississippian Society in what would become the Midwestern United States. That kind of Mississippian world delineating groups who are intensive maize agriculturalists, and the groups here weren't, but they were clearly involved in interaction networks and trade with them. We'll look at 16th century maps
0: of Florida and discuss the Ocoee Massacre of 1920.
2: There was a campaign throughout Florida to register blacks to vote, to get them involved in elections, which was, was quite horrifying, I think, to the Jim Crow South and to Jim Crow Florida.
0: All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
2: Old Mississippi, she's calling my name. Catfish, you're jumping, that paddle
0: wheel bumping. Black water, keep rolling all
2: fast, just the same. Oh, Black water, keep on rolling. Mississippi, the moon won't you keep on shining on Oh, Black water, keep on
0: rolling. Mississippi moon, won't keep on shining on me? Oh, black water, keep on rolling. Mississippi moon, won't keep on shining on
3: me? Yeah, keep on shining your light.
4: Gonna make everything great. mama. Gonna make everything alright. And I ain't got no Cause I ain't.
0: About 1,000 years ago, agricultural communities were established in what would become the southeastern and midwestern United States and what is called the Mississippian culture flourished. Dr. Keith Ashley is an archaeologist and research coordinator at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. Dr. Ashley's research is demonstrating a link between native Floridians and the thriving Mississippian culture.
1: Yeah, it it probably sprang to life at about 900 to 1,000 A.D. And what it is, Mississippian world is kind of a term that we've superimposed as archaeologists on the landscape of the past. And basically what was going on within the Mississippian world, these were chiefdom-level groups, Uh, meaning that they had uh, institutionalized inequality. They had chiefs who controlled more than one village. Uh, They were involved in intensive maize agriculture, taking advantage of the alluvial uh, floodplains. Uh, They were involved in these far-flung trade and exchange networks. And they had these large mound complexes with uh, platform mounds that probably were the uh, platforms for chiefly residents. When looking at a map of the Mississippian world, Peninsular
0: Florida is excluded. However, archaeological evidence uncovered by Dr. Ashley demonstrates that Native Americans living in Northeast Florida were part of an extensive trade network
1: that extended to present-day St. Louis. Yeah, they were definitely involved in the area. It's not a closed system. Uh, you know, Usually they're marked off because they weren't intensive maize agriculturalists. So that kind of Mississippian world's delineating groups who are intensive maize agriculturalists. And the groups here weren't, but they were clearly involved in interaction networks and trade with them. In addition to growing
0: maize or corn, the Mississippian cultures were known for their construction of platform mounds on which they would build houses, temples, and burial buildings. The largest chiefdom of the Mississippian world had a ceremonial complex at Cahokia located near present-day Collinsville, Illinois, across the Mississippi River from St. Louis, Missouri.
1: Dr. Ashley. What we see here is that there was a series of chiefdoms, these these kind of regional communities throughout the southeastern United States. And the largest one, especially early on in the Mississippi period, was Cahokia. Uh, Cahokia probably uh, sprang up about a 1,000 AD. And then by 1250, it's into the climb. By 1300, it's gone. Okay. But in its wake, what you see are a lot of other kind of rival chiefdoms that sprout up throughout the area. Macon Plateau is also another early mound complex, and it's in the uh, Akamogi area of Georgia. So you see these, these um, uh, chiefdoms rise and fall throughout the Mississippian period. Sometimes they become much larger. Uh, they group together. Other times they just break down. So it's a really dynamic landscape, and mounds were a big part of these regional centers.
0: Dr. Ashley says that the St. John's culture of northeast Florida roughly coincides with the Mississippian world. The St. John's period begins about 500 A.D. and continues until European contact
1: 1,000 years later. They're fisher hunter, fisher collectors, hunters, uh, those types of things, uh, so that they are just uh, living off the marsh, living off the estuarine resources. But what happens, there seems to be um, uh, these larger... Interaction networks that had been uh, really viable early on are kind of in this period of lull, and then they pick up again. And when they pick up again, the people in northeastern Florida really kind of gravitate to it and become part of it uh, because I think they have a resource that people in the landlocked areas of Alabama, Georgia, uh, Missouri want in that shell. Archaeologists have a love-hate relationship with
0: Clarence B. Moore. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, Moore documented some significant archaeological sites in Florida, but like most explorers of his generation, his methods of excavation were often quite destructive. Moore did much of his work in the Jacksonville
1: area. Yeah, I think you're exactly right with Moore. There's a love-hate relationship. I think everyone really kind of respects him because people at that time weren't writing. He would go back and he would write up and produce, publish the works that he did. So we at least had that information. Uh, No, he didn't use the standards we use today. But when he came into the Jacksonville area, he was just trying to find mounds to excavate. So he excavated the... uh, uh, the Grant Mound and the nearby Shields Mound, And from those, he really uncovered these spectacular artifacts. A lot of them are made of copper or they are covered with copper, uh, mica, galena, all types of uh, minerals that are coming from these far-flung areas of the southeast or the broader eastern North America.
0: As Dr. Ashley explains, unique copper artifacts have been discovered along the periphery of the Mississippian world, including
1: in northeast Florida. What is it? These uh, small uh, small little earpieces, um, uh, maybe a couple of inches in size, and they look like a face. They kind of look like a face, but they would have had a long nose protruding from them. And so far, we've only found seven complete pairs of those in copper in the entire United States, and all of them, we believe, are manufactured at Cahokia. So I think three of the pairs have been found in the Cahokia, at least the American Bottoms area. The other are in these areas that are peripheral to the Mississippian world, one in Wisconsin, uh, one in Spiro and Oklahoma. One in Gagin in Louisiana, and then Grant Mountain in Jacksonville. So it's just interesting that their distribution is right there on the edge of the of the Mississippian world.
0: So although archaeologists exclude peninsular Florida from the Mississippian world because native Floridians did not grow corn, the copper artifacts discovered in Jacksonville demonstrate
1: interaction between Native Americans who were very distant geographically. Yes, some have argued that maybe these, um, these masks, these long nose mask earpieces are, are kind of uh, gifts that are given to these um, groups on the periphery because they are wanting to strike up a relationship uh, with them, Cahokia is. And so they're part of these alliance or adoption kind of ceremonies that seals them as maybe uh, exchange partners or, uh, or allies somehow.
0: Dr. Ashley has expanded on the information gathered by Clarence B. Moore in Jacksonville, discovering distinctive pottery and other artifacts that further support the idea of native Floridians interacting with their
1: neighbors far to the north. Clarence B. Moore dug in the Indian mounds, and so we're not digging in any mounds at all. So we wanted to go to the village areas near the mounds to see where they're living. And we did find one area within about 50 meters of the mound that was really, we think, a special area. Uh, We think they were feasting there and throwing the remains of feasting away. We think that's where they were probably preparing uh, the bodies for burial. Uh, we think that they were preparing the, uh, the colorings for the sands that were part of the layers they used to build the mound. Uh, we think they were uh, crafting the really um, uh, fancy uh, regalia and pieces that they may have worn during the rituals and also pieces that they're going to be putting into the mound to attend uh, kind of the people on the, into the afterworld. A lot of times we think these mounds may really be shrines to their ancestors. They're kind of these visual edifices that are are kind of a daily reminder of their community, of their history, uh, their tie
0: to the land. Additional evidence of trade between the Midwestern Mississippian Ceremonial Center of Cahokia and the natives of northeast Florida is the discovery in Jacksonville
1: of tools unique to Cahokia. We found these small little points, and they're called Cahokia side notch points. Uh, One of them was found in Mount Royal, which is now near Lake George, but we also found one in Kinsey's Knoll, which is right near Shields Mound in the Jacksonville area, and we had archaeologists from Cahokia look at it, and they told us that, that, yes, this is a Cahokia point. It would look like You know, any point they would find at Cahokia, they believed it was made out of a Burlington chert, which is a a chert that's from the American Bottoms area, so it's not a local Florida chert. Uh, so we have those. We have another um, which call these biconical ear spools, which are kind of these cone shaped ear spools that were covered in copper. Uh, very similar versions have been found at this site called Booker T. Washington site in Illinois, which is near Cahokia, also been found in Oklahoma. So we have some other kind of copper covered artifacts that are real similar to ones that we find in the Cahokia area.
0: In between the St. John's Culture Indians of Northeast Florida and the Mississippian Culture Indians of the Southeast and Midwest was a pocket of hunter-gatherers that also had contact with Northeast Florida residents
1: about 1,000 years ago. Well, about 1,000 A.D., uh, you had the Jacksonville area with the Mill Cove Mound complex, and then we had... Um, Macon Plateau, which was really the closest Mississippian center to them, and then beyond Macon Plateau would have been Cahokia. Uh, but what's interesting is between Macon Plateau and the Mill Cove Complex in northeastern Florida, there's this group of hunters and gatherers, and they make a distinct type of cordmark pottery that we called Okmulgee Cordmark. And we find it on St. John's two sites in the Jacksville, Florida area. So uh, it makes up anywhere from 2 to 10% of site assemblages. So we noticed a similarity, so we had... Um, Uh, University of Missouri do some instrumental neutron activation analysis, and basically it's a chemical procedure to look at the chemical breakup of the clays that were used to make the pots. And what we found out is some of the Okamulgee pottery that we find in Jacksonville, Florida is actually coming from uh, south-central Georgia. It is coming from the Okamulgee area. Others, however, is being made out of local clays, uh, but it's identical. Uh, We can't tell the two apart. The only way that they can be shown to be different is, um, is through chemical analysis. Uh, so we are thinking that maybe uh, female potters who learned how to make Akmolgi pottery marry into St. John's communities in Jacksonville, and they bring that their natal pottery technology with them, and it's allowed to continue in the St. John's villages.
0: Dr. Keith Ashley is an archaeologist and research coordinator at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. Keep on black water, keep on Me. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch original video, and much more. While you're there, please click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive the classic Taboe book, The History of Florida, our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. And
2: in the place where you live. Now think, think about direction.
0: Have been helping people to navigate Florida for about 500 years. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco, where the oldest map in the collection is from 1570.
4: Right. Uh, what we're looking at now is a uh, uh, circa 1570s uh, Ortelius map of La Florida. And what's interesting about this map is that uh, we notice there is a peninsula here that looks sort of like Florida. But it also uh, is depicting uh, what looks like the entire southeastern United States, and that's all labeled as La Florida. Um, And there are a few recognizable rivers here. Um, looks like the Mississippi and a few other river systems that are sort of penetrating into the interior um, of what we now know of as the, the southeastern U.S. What's also really interesting are a number of small, um, what looks like castles. It looks like these big European fortresses, uh, and next to it there are a few names here. And what we know is that these are, uh, or would have represented, Native American villages. In um, this particular map, a lot of this information is based on the uh, Hernando de Soto expedition into the interior of the, um, of the United States, uh, and some of the... Um, some of the Native American villages that they would have visited uh, were, were recorded and then reproduced on this map uh, decades later.
0: And you also have two other maps here, from uh, two Spanish maps from
4: the late 16th century. Yeah, these are really interesting. They're about um, two feet long by by about uh, one foot, um, you know, in, in height. And the first map um, depicts what, what looks like the Caribbean, but also Florida and the northern part of the map. Uh, but at the very bottom, we actually see parts of Central and South America as well. Um, and this map is, is actually written, it's a Spanish map, but it's, everything is written in Latin. So it's a little bit hard to um, discern what we're looking at. But you know, just with initial observation, you can tell. Oh, okay. Well, here's Florida, um, and it's actually labeled La Florida. But there are a few other really interesting um, uh, names and, and place names that we can pick out. One is the island of Cuba uh, with the city of Havana. We have Hispaniola, which is actually very well defined, and it looks very much like um, you know how we know uh, his, the island of Hispaniola looks today. And we also have Puerto Rico here, um, but also parts of South America, which by the late 16th century, we know, was, was um, already uh, occupied by the Spanish and had been explored, and there were a number of um, settlements and cities on the coast of, of South America that are very well, very well marked here. Um, the second map uh, that dates from that period... Uh, the late 16th century, really focuses in on Florida. And this is really interesting um, because there are a number of small, what looks like these dome structures that are representing Native American villages. And there are a few names we can uh, recognize, like the Calusa um, are here. In fact, the, the Timucua are actually up in, in what we now know as, as Northeast Florida. And then all the way up at the top of the map uh, is the Appalachian, which is kind of interesting.
0: It's also interesting to, to look at how the depiction of, of Florida kind of evolved over time. We're looking at these late 16th century maps and, and uh, Florida is uh, roughly the, 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 the shape that it was, and, and, but the, the keys are kind of like a little uh, pile, of, pile, pile of islands at the bottom of the state.
4: Right, and there really are just sort of these distinguishing features, you know, that, that are sticking out. Um, uh, Cape Canaveral is, is featured on all three of these maps. So as early as the 1570s, we have uh, Cape Canaveral named on the map as a, as a major landmark. And as you mentioned, the keys are just sort of these little dots, you know, but they are featured here on the map. We can see bays, uh, what we now know of as, as Tampa Bay, is noted on the map. Um, up around uh, Pensacola is also noted. And if we look farther north up the east coast, you can see... Uh, where uh, where South Carolina is now, uh, Fort Caroline was there at, at that time. Um, but like I said, they were just sort of the, the maps were, were uh, sort of filled in, um, you know, using uh, artist license based on these landmarks that would have been uh, this this information would have been brought back to Europe, brought, brought back to Spain. Uh, and they just sort of filled in the gaps uh, and pieced together the, the the shape of the peninsula. Besides just showing us land masses, uh,
0: the, these maps include rather uh, fanciful depictions of uh, sea creatures and ships and, and and other interesting
4: drawings. Right. These are really pretty interesting. Um, you'll notice in, in the Gulf of Mexico here, there's a giant uh, sea creature that, that uh, sort of looks like a whale. Uh, and on the other map in the Gulf of Mexico, there's a, a, another picture of a uh, what looks like a cross between a, a manatee and a, a, a koi fish and a whale or something like that um, and depicts sort of like a there's a blowhole and, and uh, fins and things like that and then uh, in the Atlantic it looks like there's a more menacing creature sort of coming up out of the water and there are also a number of ships that are sailing around through this area um, and it's important to understand that you know these maps are, are uh, really uh, just as much a, a work of art than they are uh, an actual uh, you know nautical a map or, or a guide uh, for what the the physical um, uh, aspects of, of the area looks like. So, you know, these map makers or these cartographers, as we call them, were uh, really were artists. You know, in in the classical sense. You know, and they really um, worked, and their career wasn't in, in classical art. Uh, so they were sort of adding in these um, these images based on. Uh, probably based on descriptions, you know, from sailors. And, and in this age of exploration, um, you know, the, a lot of these sailors were sort of seeing sea creatures like a manatee probably for the first time. Uh, and uh, they're, they're sort of describing what it looked like. And this cartographer is taking that um, sort of broken description and piecing together um, what looks like a, a crazy uh, half koi fish, half manatee whale thing, uh, and then placing it right in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, you know, so again, it's not a real literal interpretation, but it's it's based in, in probably in some um, some actual uh, observations.
0: Now these have all been Spanish maps that we've been looking at, but uh, the British controlled Florida from seventeen sixty three to seventeen eighty three and you have a map from that period here as
4: well. Right. So we're going to kind of fast forward to 1763. Uh, and this is a, a British map. Um, uh, everything is, is, of course, written in English. Um, but we really start to see the, the evolution of, of the understanding of, of what Florida, the the shape of Florida, looks like. And this really does look like, you know, modern-day Florida. Um, and it's, uh, as we know, like I said before, it was printed in 1763. So this is just as the British are taking over uh, the Florida territories from the Spanish. Um, and, and this map was really... Um, uh, aimed at, at uh, learning as much as they could about this new territory. Because at the time, the British really didn't know much about Florida. Um, so this map was commissioned to uh, uh, sort of help identify uh, some of the river systems, you know, areas that could be uh, possibly farmed because the British wanted to, to settle this new province or this new territory. Well, Ben, these are amazing. Thanks, as always. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational
0: Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in
2: Cocoa.
0: This is Florida Frontiers. On November 2, 1920, two African-American men attempted to exercise their legal right to vote in Orlando, but were turned away from the polls. One of the men, July Perry, was lynched and his body hung from a tree downtown. The African-American section of nearby Okoe was burned to the ground. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more.
2: There was a campaign throughout Florida to register blacks to vote, to get them involved in elections, which was, was quite horrifying, I think, to the Jim Crow South and to Jim Crow Florida. And so there, there is a worry there that perhaps blacks are getting a little out of their place politically as well as economically.
3: That was Dr. Claire Strom, Repetti Tronzo Professor of History at Rollins College. She was speaking to us about the 1920 presidential election in Florida. This was an important election in the Sunshine State. Dr. Strom tells us why this election was so important.
2: I think that there was a great sense in 1920 of change. World War I had ended and 1919 had not been a good year for anyone really. But there had been African-Americans in the military uh, during the war although in limited numbers. Women had got the right to vote in 1920. This is the first election they can vote in. So I think that there was a sense among sectors of the population that perhaps they could effect change. Perhaps they could make a difference. And the Republican Party, which had so long been not present in the South, was putting money into voter uh, registration drives into trying to get African-Americans signed up to vote. So I think there was a sense that perhaps this was, this was an election when change could be affected.
3: Throughout Central Florida, this specific election will always be tied to the Ocoee Riot, or massacre, as some contemporary accounts called it. Dr. Strom researched the Ocoee Riot and the subsequent lynching of July Perry, which all started on Election Day 1920. Both July Perry and Mose Norman were specifically targeted, while the entire black population of Okoe eventually became embroiled in an evening of racial violence. Dr. Strom tells us what role economic factors played in the riot.
2: I think one of the things, one of the patterns that uh, my student Carly Hoffman and I identified was that in 1920, blacks in O'Koe or at least a. a significant number of blacks in Okoe were doing fairly well economically. And obviously in the Jim Crow South, this was not something that was looked upon favorably by the white community. Blacks, especially the two in question, were leading labor gangs uh, in the Orange Groves. They owned their own property, including an Orange Grove. Uh, one of them had a car they owned their own homes so this was perhaps getting above their station. And I think the other thing, uh, too, is at this time, although we associate the Depression with the 30s, certainly rural communities in America were slipping into Depression as early as the 20s, as early as 1920. So you can imagine a white community that's, you know, probably a little economically unstable, very concerned about uh, where the economy is going, and then confronted with african-americans who are prosperous so i think there was there was definitely this economic edge in the community in
3: 1998 an orange county group known as democracy forum held a meeting and discussed the history of Okoe. this was part of a public conversation about whether the event in Okoe amounted to a riot or a massacre contemporary accounts used both words but scholars and local residents believed these words had different meanings and transmitted very different things about the past. Although collective memory is frequently open to questions and interpretations as well as rooted in the present as much as the past, some of the specific facts of Ocoee are still shrouded in mystery. Dr. Strom explains the problems she encountered examining records from the time.
2: Well, I think there are a couple of challenges in detailing any kind of race riot that took place in the 20s, and there were a number. And the problems are similar in Ocoee to other race riots. One is that it seems that uh, records were purposefully destroyed. So, for example, we have information that from the Orlando Sentinel that 78 African Americans were registered to vote in COE. but when we went to the voter registration records from 1920, the ledgers only listed three people as registered to vote. This was found out pretty shortly after the riot. The NAACP sent someone down to investigate the riot and a guy named Walter White, and White surmised that someone had tampered with the election records, so we don't really know when the people uh, the African Americans um, claimed that they had registered to vote. We have no evidence if that was true or not because we don't have the records.
3: Records tampering is not the only difficulty to understand fully what happened election night 1920 in Okoe. Important details have been completely lost to history, as Dr. Strom described for us.
2: Another of the, uh, the, the problems that we face is determining casualty numbers. The numbers that are on record vary between 3 and 300, so it's a wide uh, variance. Part of that is that officials at the time, authorities at the time, didn't investigate, or if they did investigate, didn't write anything down. Uh, all of the African Americans in okoe left and didn't want their names associated with okoe after this because of possibility of retribution so there was no uh, discussion from them until years later I mean half a century later when this was investigated uh, more thoroughly you know bodies were never found the white account at the time was that there were three victims Walter White from the NAACP recorded about 30 that he could document uh, that were killed Uh, subsequent numbers from the African Americans are much higher so it's very difficult to actually piece together the whole story when you're dealing with something that was so problematic at the time and remained problematic in the years following the event.
3: In 2010, Dr. Paul Ortiz from the University of Florida was the keynote speaker at the Okoe Martin Luther King Day celebration. Upon reflection of that experience, Dr. Ortiz wrote that he believed the stories of the riot were still incomplete. Although the history of what happened to the black residents of Okoi were hushed throughout the 20th century, he was happy to see the city finally come to terms with the past. We may never learn all the specific details about the Okoi riot, but that shouldn't keep us from exploring its lessons and the lessons of difficult histories that are the patchwork of our shared past. I am Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can always visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and get a daily update about Florida history by liking our Facebook page at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Baldupont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.